Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The scripture says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I just want to take a moment to pause here. First off, the scripture says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. That's enough to mess some of us up right now because we want the Spirit to lead us to the promised land and to paradise and to a warmer climate. Amen. But sometimes the Lord will lead you to the wilderness. Sometimes he will lead you to Connecticut. Even though you're warm-blooded and all of your lineage comes from the south, The Spirit will lead you to places that you don't necessarily have to go or want to go, rather, but you have to go because the Lord is leading you there. Spirit is leading you. So Scripture says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you think you've been tempted, you didn't know that Jesus has been tempted as well, which we'll deal with as we get deeper into this message. Now, check this out. He was tempted after he had fasted 40 days And 40 nights, he then became hungry. So it's bad enough when you're being tempted in everyday life after you have three meals a day. But imagine not eating for 40 days and your body being weak, being flesh and blood, you're you're hangry. And now having to deal with the devil himself tempting you. And the scripture says in verse 3 that the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, if, if you are who you say you are, if your identity is what the scriptures have prophesied, then command these stones to become bread. The word of the Lord in the church said, I want to, I want to preach and teach for just a few moments from the topic identity check, identity check. A continuation of our series on identity. Today we're going to talk about the concept of an identity check. A week ago I went to the store to buy something. I had a particular piece of equipment that I had in mind that I needed to go and purchase. And so I went to the store, found what I needed, got to the cashier's desk, took out my card, gave it to the cashier. They ran the card and it was declined. Now, before y'all start judging me, I knew exactly how much money was in the bank account. I knew exactly the reality that this expense would fit within what I had allocated. Anybody ever been there in that moment? And it's really bad when you're really trying to get stuff together because, you know, some of you back in the day, you would just pray and speak in tongues at the register and just say, Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that there be something on this card. And then you get denied then you just pick out another card and another card. Okay, there we go. We got it. We got it. It must be a little issue. But in this moment, um, there, there was an issue. And, and here's the issue. 30 seconds after I made the purchase... Um, I got a text message from my bank. And the text message from the bank said, good afternoon. Um, Did you make this purchase at this particular place? And it had the amount in the text message, and I could respond yes or no. And when I responded yes, it verified the purchase, and it freed up my account, and I could go back and do the transaction again. That's what we call identity verification. And as frustrating as it was, it was actually designed to protect me from fraud and protect me from people who might have come across my card and decided to spend on stuff that I didn't authorize. It's not that I didn't have enough money or credit. It's just that the system was trying to verify my identity and protect me. We see this type of process in most areas of life now. For example, um, that bank needed to verify that it was indeed me who was making the purchase, so they have this system of text messages. Every once in a while, a cashier will ask you for your photo ID to verify your credit card. 
Sometimes you might have an issue with a particular account, so you call customer service. Maybe it's with your utility bill, something that's tied to your name or your credit worthiness, and they'll ask you a series of questions to verify that you are indeed authorized to make decisions on that account. They might ask for your date of birth. They might ask you a security question that you entered into the system when you created the account. Or they might ask for the last four digits of your social security number just to confirm that you are who you say that you are. And then nowadays, there's biometric verification. Anybody here have an iPhone? Amen. I knew the anointing was here on this side of the room. (laughs) Glory to God. Hallelujah. The anointing. Ah, I see you on that side. Over there, they said, pass me not, O gentle Savior. I don't know about Android, but, but iPhone has. iPhone has something called Face ID. And it actually allows you to utilize your facial features and confirm your identity so only you can unlock your phone. And they've done tests with this. It's actually the most accurate form of Face ID from all the phones. You know, some of you, you could try putting your picture in front of it, and it won't unlock. Uh, The only way it'll unlock is if you have an identical twin that has your exact DNA in front of it. But um, other than that, it won't do fraternal twins either. It has to be the exact identical twin. Just showing you the power of biometric verification. Some of you have different devices. It requires a thumbprint. You only have one unique thumbprint. It's your thumbprint, and that allows you to get access or to gain access to what you need. So all these different things have a form of checking your identity to verify that you are who you say you are. Now, here's the definition of verify. To verify means to make sure that something is true, accurate, or justified. To verify means that someone is trying to make sure that you are who you say that you are. And verification also has a purpose to substantiate and authenticate. There are even trends on social media now where celebrities, public figures, and brands can apply for a verified Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram account because apparently success brings a lot of imposters, impersonators, and imitators. And it's interesting, on social media, you'll see a page, and it has the name of a famous person, and then you'll start reading their posts, and you realize, this really probably isn't the person. So what they did with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram is that if you see a blue check on the profile of that particular person, then you know that their account is verified. It is verified that that is indeed the person who they say that they are. So here's my question for today, and this is what I want you to really think about. I want you to chew on this, okay? Um, Is your Christianity verified? Is your Christian Christian witness, this lifestyle that you claim, is it verified by God himself? When people look at you, do they see the blue check? Do they see a lot of actions that might look like Christianity, but when it comes down to it, you're not really practicing with your full heart, or do they see a person who is verified, filled with the Holy Spirit, and doing their best to honor God with their lives? Christianity has a lot of imposters, a lot of impersonators, and a lot of imitators. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says this, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. Now, all I'm saying is that all you have to do is turn on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, whatever your persuasion is, and see that we are in some very difficult times. All types of crazy things are happening. So you need to know that we are in the last days. Technically, we've been in the last days since Jesus ascended. So these times have always been perilous, but there are winds and there are seasons and there are things happening in the world that we as believers should be paying attention to. We should not be so caught up in our Sunday day, Sunday experience and running and shouting, which is all good in its proper context. But, but we have to live in such a way that we are discerning of the times. And we can't just uh, be caught up in coming to church, getting my, my blessing, living my life and ignoring the fact that the world is suffering. Ignoring the fact that all types of craziness is going on. 
But here's the thing. It's already been prophesied in Scripture. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. Paul was a seasoned apostle. And Paul is helping Timothy understand the times that he would have to pastor in. He said, Timothy, these are the last days. There will be very difficult times. Verse 2 says, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. Now, I want you to see this next phrase. They will consider nothing sacred. It used to be a time where people wouldn't even cuss in the parking lot of the church. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that philosophy because you should be who you are, wherever you are. But there was at least a sense of reverence for the things of God and the things that are connected to God. There used to be a time where if you knew there was a minister or a pastor in your presence, you would alter the way that you live just out of respect. You don't believe the same thing that they believe, but, but you had a sense of respect for what they stood for. Nowadays, people will cuss and act a fool. They don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the pope. I'm going to say what I have to say. It's because we consider nothing sacred anymore. Verse 3 says that they will be unloving and unforgiving. Unloving and unforgiving. People try to say that the church is a judgmental place. And I just say, well, have you ever been on Twitter? Have you ever been on a Facebook page and just scrolled down and read, read the comments? And, and read the, the commentary of people. And it doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left. It doesn't matter what your race or your persuasion is. There is something in the nature of people that is inherently unforgiving. And you see it played out in the commentary of people. We live in a culture that is unloving, unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They will be reckless. They will be puffed up with pride. And they will love pleasure rather than God. Now, here's the clincher. Verse 5 says that they will act religious. So, so Paul is not just talking about the pagans who, who aren't intermingled within the church. He's saying that there will even be people who claim to know God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They will claim to be religious. They will act religious. They will be connected to a denomination or a church. They will put bumper stickers on their car to say that Jesus is my co-pilot. They will recite scriptures. They will have their favorite preachers. They will go to their Christian conferences. But yet the scripture says that there is a category of people that will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. It's one thing to act godly. It's another thing to be godly. It's one thing to perform in the faith. And the danger with the Sunday gathering is that it will become a place of performance because when you're amongst the Romans, do as the Romans do. You just lift your hands because everybody else is lifting their hands. You close your eyes because everybody else is closing their eyes. You dance and you shout because everybody else is dancing and shouting. But, but God wants you to bring, he wants to bring you to a place where your experience is authenticated. What authenticates you? The fact that you have a relationship with your creator. What authenticates you? The fact that you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What authenticates you? The fact that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you now that you are born again. You have been transformed from the inside out. And this is no longer about show. It's no longer about performance, but it's about pleasing your father in heaven. The scripture says that there will be a category of people who act religious, but they reject the power that could make them godly. They have the chance to become godly, but they reject it. They listen to the preacher Sunday after Sunday, but they have not yet received the message that is going forth. They have a community of people who are willing and ready to help them be accountable, but they don't want to be accountable. Be careful if you're the type of Christian who says, I don't need nobody telling me how to live my life. Preacher, tread lightly. 
talk about this, but, but, but don't talk about that. We pick and choose what we're willing to receive and believe. Rejecting the power that actually makes us godly. So Paul ends this paragraph by saying, stay away from people like that. In other words, stay away from people who act religious but don't really want to be godly. People who claim to be religious, yet they are not verified. They say one thing and live another. And when presented with the truth and presented with power that could make them godly, they reject it. Paul is saying in these last days, we're going to see people like that. But here's the danger. In these last days, we want to make sure that we're not like that. In this season, God is making a clear distinction between true believers and the world. As things get crazier and crazier, God is going to rise up a remnant of people who truly do love him. And because things are getting crazier and crazier, there will be a greater distinction between those who really love him and those who love the world. This is why the people of God have to Embrace their true identity as children of God. See, as the world gets worse, we should get better. As the world gets crazier and loses its moral compass, the people of God should become more attuned to where God is and how he's moving because that's our responsibility as believers. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us who leads us into all truth. So as the world gets crazier, there's a certain level of distinction that has to separate the body of Christ from everyone else. It's not just about what you wear. It's not just about whether or not you wear makeup or the length of your skirt. It is about the authenticity of your heart. It is about a love relationship with your creator. It is about your submission to the Holy Spirit. It is about your desire and your willingness to live this out through the core of who you are. It is your resistance to just playing church, but your desire to become the church. It is you with everything that you have surrendering your life to Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm willing to follow you wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do. In the midst of a troubled and confused world, there must be verified believers who authenticate, who authenticate the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the midst of this troubled and confused world, there must be verified believers who authenticate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the world is tired of seeing fakes. And most times when they talk about Christians, they talk about the fakes. Most times when they talk about Christianity, they pick the worst examples possible, and then they project those worst examples onto everybody, and they say, that's why, that's why I don't go. That's why I don't participate. But you must be the type of believer that causes them to say, you're the reason why. I will go. You're the reason why I'll consider. There's something in you. There's something on you. There's something about you that is special. It's distinct. It's unique. You're not like everybody else. There must be something about you that verifies you, authenticates you, and leads people closer to Christ. There must be a distinction between us and the world. The gospel is authenticated through our lifestyle which is why it's important for us to know our true identity. So I'm going to walk you through a passage of scripture that that helps us understand what an authenticated lifestyle in Christ looks like. And the more you study scripture, the more you understand the New Testament, the more you understand what the apostles wrote, the better understanding you get about how to live out this identity and how to walk in this identity in Christ. And certain scriptures should challenge the way that you're living. I'd be afraid of a Christianity that did not challenge me to live better and to do better. Be concerned if you find yourself in places that only want to motivate you and only want to inspire you, but do not challenge you. And God is saying in this hour, we need motivation, we need inspiration, but we also need conviction. 
We also need to be challenged. We also need to be told when we're not doing or living the way that we should be living, there must be a level of conviction that plays out in the scripture. Every once in a while, you ought to say, ouch. Every once in a while, you ought to be uncomfortable in the comfortable chairs. Every once in a while, you ought to walk away from a message saying, I need to get my life. I need to get my soul right. I need to make some changes. I need to do some things differently. Every once in a while, you've got to hear something that causes you to reconsider how you're living. So this is one of those passages of Scripture, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The Scripture says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when he speaks about the world, he's speaking about the systems and the culture of the world. We know that Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is a love that was willing to die for people that would eventually reject him. Some would believe and others would continue to reject him. But Jesus loved the world in that sense. But what this is speaking about, this is speaking about loving the culture, the morals and the values of a corrupt system. And the writer is saying that we cannot love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Look at verse 16. It says, for all that is in the world. And then he lists some things. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also is lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, this is the conflict between our friends who don't believe in God and us crazy Christians who believe the story in the text. It indicates that everything in this world is going to pass away and that the lust that everybody else is participating in, those are temporary and that ultimately the only thing that will stand is obedience to the will of the Father. The one who does the will of God lives forever. And I know they say you only live once, YOLO, hashtag. But this scripture is indicating that we will live again. We are born again and we will live again. And there are eternal consequences for what we do on this earth. And the writer is saying, don't get fooled with the okie doke. You got to keep focus on the right things. So here are some of the worldly philosophies that were spelled out in this scripture. There are three that I want you to become familiar with. One, lust of the flesh. This is what we call hedonism. Number two, lust of the eyes. This speaks to materialism. Pride of life. This speaks to egotism. Hedonism, materialism, and egotism. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Let's define these terms. Hedonism is the philosophy and the doctrine that pleasure and self-indulgence is the most important pursuit of mankind. It is the idea that life revolves around my pursuit of pleasure. And the chief aim of a person is to do things and participate in things that make them feel good to indulge in the sensual pleasures of the world because ultimately you're going to live this life and you want to live it to the fullest. So the person who ascribes to hedonism embraces pleasure at all costs. If the right thing makes me uncomfortable, I'm not doing the right thing. If the wrong thing makes me feel good, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. And they find not being right because it feels good. Nudge your neighbor and say, yeah. yeah. It feels good. <laughs> you caught that. A couple of y'all caught that. <laughs> the doctrine of hedonism says pursue what feels good. And if it doesn't feel good, reject it. Here's the problem. Christianity is not about what feels good. It's about what's right. In fact, it was Jesus himself, the founder of our faith, that says, if anybody wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, 
and follow me. So if you want to become a disciple of Christ, you have to get used to letting go of some things. You have to get used to denying some things. So hedonism doesn't fit with Christianity because our founder denied himself and says we should deny ourselves. Hedonism plays out in in all of the dark pleasures of our psyche. And the thing about it is, nowadays there's so much exposure because you can't miss what you've never had. But the enemy is so strategic as he puts things in front of you to entice you, to draw you away from the Lord and to tempt you with pleasure. But let me tell you, there's certain fruits that you should never taste. No matter how good it smells, no matter how edible it is, no matter how appealing it is to your eye. Come here, Eve, back in the garden. The serpent, who was the most subtle beast of the field, slithered into the garden, appealed to Eve's flesh. And she said, that fruit smells good. Certain stuff that smells good, run away. I don't care how good that cologne is and smells. I, 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 don't, I don't care how, how wonderful that, that perfume is. I don't care. I, I don't care how, how, look she, how good she looks, how strong he is. Christianity says, if it's not within the context and the boundaries for which God has set up, then it's not for me. But the world is saying, go for it. The world is saying, go for it. Holy Spirit said, don't go for it. And we are wrestling with our flesh. And God is saying in this hour, if we want to walk in our true identity, we have to deal with our hedonism. This gets all the way to our bellies. How many of y'all got a belly that just has enjoyed way too much pleasure? Because hedonism is not just about sex. Sometimes there are guilty pleasures that we have that nobody knows about and they wouldn't be offensive to somebody else, but God told you to stop, but you're still going. It's because you're trying to feed the pleasures of your flesh because you have not dealt with the issues in your heart. For one person, it's a bed. For another person, it's a bagel. Am I, am I preaching today? For one person is weed, for another person it's a weave. You ain't got enough money to pay rent, but... Because somewhere along the way, each of those things, as extreme as they are, validate you and make you feel comfortable. And so we'll disregard wisdom to pursue pleasure because we're not happy with me. And the lie of the enemy is that by indulging in that thing you know you're not supposed to have, he makes it look real good, doesn't he? And you feel good for a moment. But the lusts of the flesh are temporary. And after you've indulged, after you've partaken, after the high is gone, you come back down to reality and you still have the same issues, the same problems. You still have the broken sense of identity because you've tried to fix what only God can fix himself. And God is saying, come to me in the midst of your struggle. Because whenever God calls you from something, he always brings you to something. There are healthy habits that can replace the bad habits that we've had in the past. And that's the beautiful thing about understanding your identity. We learned last week in Romans 8 that we have no obligation to follow the sinful desires of our flesh. We have the right to say no. But here's what I need you to see. You have the right to say yes to God. Oh, if you could learn how to say yes to God and not just say no to the enemy. 
if you could say yes to God, if you could just get to the place where you love him so much, where you have such a wonderful relationship with him, that, that it doesn't matter about the other things because you are enamored and you adore your creator and your savior so much so that everything else pales in comparison. And the only true pleasure you'll find is in his presence. The type of pleasure that is not cheap, but it's costly and expensive. Because the love that he poured out for you on the cross when Jesus died on Calvary, it's the best love that you could ever receive. Lust of the flesh, hedonism. But then there's materialism. Materialism is a philosophy that having possessions is the key to happiness in life. Lust of the eyes. I see it. I want it. I, 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 I covet what other people have. I, I, I want to be rich so bad. I, I want to have the nice things because when I have nice things, people look at me. But I learned a long time ago that just because you have a nice car doesn't mean that you have money. How many of you got that revelation? I mean, growing up, man, they got that Mercedes. Little did I know they were paying $895 a month with 24% interest. <laughs> All that glitters isn't gold. And we get to this place where we're constantly comparing ourselves to others and we think, if I just get this, if I could just have this, if I could just achieve this, then finally people will respect me. Some of us, we're so twisted. I want the nice car. So when I go to Thanksgiving, people won't ask me. <laughs> That's how deep it goes for some of us. Some of us are living moment to moment just to try to justify the people that we grew up with that we're somebody. And so through our clothes and through our presentation and through the way we try to tell people that we're living, we think somehow that gives us a sense of identity. And God is saying you cannot identify yourself with materialism. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Our material possessions should not define us. And it's good to look nice, but let it, don't let it define you. It's okay to have things, but when you have things, give God the glory for the things that you have. Use them for his glory. Some of us are just so stingy. Praying to God for a car, and we won't let no, nobody ride in the car with us. We won't go pick anybody else up. We won't help nobody else out. You're blessed to be a blessing. And when you understand stewardship and when you have a relationship with your creator and when you know who your father is, everything you have is just so that the kingdom can be built and expanded. Because the stuff doesn't, abat, it doesn't, it doesn't define me. The stuff doesn't define me. Like the apostle Paul, I know how to abase and I know how to abound. I know how to be broke. How many of y'all know how to be broke? Broke and saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. But your brokenness does not define your identity. How many of y'all know how it feels to be balling? You've been to some places and you've made a little bit of money. But now that you're in Christ, it's not about whether or not you're broke or balling. It's about understanding that your identity is not wrapped up in what you have or what you don't have. You've learned the secret to life to be content in whatever state you find yourself in. Be content. If you don't have money, trust that your Lord is a provider and he'll make a way somehow. He'll give you what you need, that perhaps your season of blessing is coming. And when it's coming, don't you dare lose your mind. You were at the altar, broke, crying out to the Lord. Couldn't nobody beat you to church on Sunday. Couldn't beat you to the altar. All of a sudden, you got a job now. We can't find you. Can't. Ain't seeing you. Calling for the elders of the church, pray for me, I need help. Then how quickly we forget. And God is saying, don't let your situation change you. Be who you are consistently. Understand that your identity is not based on your bank account. And guess what? When you do have it, don't let it cause you to lose your mind. Because I know who I am. So we dealt with hedonism, materialism. And oh, this new one for many of us, egotism, the pride of life. 
Egotism is an inflated sense of one's self-importance that drives all behavior. We, we are so self-important that we act as if the world revolves around us. We are so self-important that every decision that we make is about us. It's all about me and mine. It's all about protecting your self-interest. But the God that we serve didn't protect his self-interest. The scripture says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of no reputation, to the point of death on a cross, and he had us in mind. He did what he did for the people. And our culture has created this vacuum. We have our personal devices. You can live in a house with other people and never, ever really talk to them. You can sit at a dinner with people and never, ever really engage with them. You can be in your living room on your computer with a completely different identity that nobody knows about. And you have to be careful that you don't get trapped in a vacuum. And then nowadays, data drives everything. You can say something and all of a sudden an ad is popping up on your phone, on your computer, based on what you said. Because these phenomenal devices have microphones, and whether you realize it or not, they're listening to everything, collecting that data to appeal to your senses and your flesh. And you wonder why just when you start talking about how you're going to make a change with your finances and your money, how you're not going to buy certain things, all of a sudden an ad pops up on your Facebook feed. It's because the enemy is the most subtle beast of the field. And now the data puts you in a vacuum. So now you are surrounded by the things that you like, the things that you want, the voices that you agree with. There's a bubble surrounding us that feeds our sense of egotism. Because everything is custom tailored for us. Get on Netflix. It has custom tailored uh, movies and films and television shows for your viewing pleasure based on what you watched before. Everything is tailored to you. But the God that we serve, everything is tailored to him. He's at the center of the universe and not us. Everything revolves around him and not us. This ain't Burger King. You can't have it your way. And God is saying, in order for you to walk in this identity, you've got to understand that everything revolves around me, says the Lord. And that requires you to adjust yourself for the benefit of God and for the benefit of others. If you want to walk in your true identity, make service your calling card. Make service first to God, vertical, and then to people, horizontal. Love God, love people. That is the root of altruism versus egotism. Altruism is looking after the, the needs of other people beyond your own needs. And we serve a God who is altruistic. We serve a God who thought about the needs of others, even beyond himself, so much so that he gave his most prized possession, his only begotten son, so that we can be set free. God is saying in this hour, it can't just be about you. There are certain blessings that will be blocked in your life if everything is about you because you're stingy and you're selfish and God knows it which is why you have a glass ceiling that you have not broken through because God wants to teach you how to love him and how to love other people. And when you learn how to give, even when you don't have, when you learn how to give to others what you desire for others, if you want friends, show yourself friendly. Stop sitting around with your arms crossed talking about don't nobody like me, don't nobody want to be my friends because you're not friendly. You reap what you sow. Nobody called me to check on me. Do you call people and check on them? You reap what you sow. The world doesn't revolve around you. Because others got their issues too. But the way the body of Christ works best, if we don't just look after our own needs, but we look after the needs of others. I'm sharing this because some of you want to be successful so bad, so much so that you have become selfish in pursuit of success. And what has that gotten you? A hindrance. And God is saying, if you want to open up and release that hindrance, you need to be selfless concerning me, vertical, and selfless concerning other people. Hedonism, materialism, and egotism. 
The identity of a Christian rejects all three of these, right? We reject hedonism because Jesus told us to deny ourselves. We reject materialism because Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. We reject egotism because Jesus said, no greater love than a man who will lay down his life for a friend. Now, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. These were not theoretical statements or cliches. These were things that he practiced and demonstrated in the earth. Because Hebrews 4 and 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus was the real deal. He can identify with our weakness because he was tempted like us, yet he did not sin. Some of you are saying, well, pastor, when was Jesus tempted? Let's go back to our focal passage and then we'll be done for today. Matthew chapter 4. Here's the context. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist out of obedience. In that moment, after he comes up from the water, the heavens open up. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. All those who were present heard an audible voice from heaven. The Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry at the end of chapter 3. But we already read the beginning of chapter 4 where we see that the very first act of his public ministry was to be led into the wilderness by the Spirit. How many of you have ever experienced spiritual highs that seemingly lead you into spiritual lows? I'll give you an example. You come to service on Sunday. That word hits you right. You get it in your spirit. You're excited because God is doing something in your life. You heard him. Somebody spoke into your life. It was confirmed in the mouth of too many witnesses. And then on Monday, it's the wilderness. On Monday, it's like, what happened? I went from this glorious moment to now I'm wrestling and struggling and fighting with the devil. You didn't know that Jesus went through that too. So the scripture says in verse 1 that Jesus was led into the spirit, led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, he challenged his identity. If you are the son of God. If you are who scripture says you are, and if you are who you say you are, command these stones to become bread. You see the first temptation? Hedonism. Feed your flesh. Jesus, you hungry. It's just simple. You are the son of God. All power is in your hands. You can just speak to the stones and make you a little sandwich. Hedonism. Feed the pleasure of your flesh right now. But Jesus was on assignment. It wasn't a time to eat. It was a time to spend with the Father. He was fasting. That was his mandate for the moment. But the devil said, why don't you just turn them stones into bread? Because you, you're the son of God, right? You got power. You got juice. But look at how Jesus responds. He answered in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now notice, Jesus responded with the word of God. Jesus responded with the word. He, he, he gave the enemy a right hook with the word of God. But the enemy's not done. He's going to try again. The devil is persistent. In many cases, more persistent than we are. But you need a persistence and a resilience that's greater than the enemy. He might keep on trying, but I'm going to keep on trying. I'm going to keep on fighting. And guess what? He's more scared of you than you should be of him. Because if you flip all the way to the back of the book, he's already defeated. His fate is already sealed. He's just trying to wreak as much havoc as possible and take as many people down with him. But he ain't getting you because you saved. So you might as well show him your hands. <laughs> saved, but I still got hands. It's not a t-shirt so you can just fight people and be petty. You wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, weakness, principalities, weakness, and rulers in high places. You got hands for the devil. You ain't playing with him. So Jesus said, listen, I'm going to hit you with the word. I look at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, I see you, devil. Jesus responded with scripture. And so the devil said, well, I know scripture too. I hope you understand that the devil 
No scripture. Two. But what he does is he perverts and he takes out of context the scripture to try to draw you away from God instead of drawing you closer to God. So in this moment, the, the, the tempter, he references Psalm 91. He references scripture. One of Satan's most powerful weapons is the use of scripture out of context. The use of scripture tied to your hedonism. The use of scripture tied to your materialism. The use of scripture tied to your egotism. To try to make the scripture say something that makes you feel better about yourself rather than building the kingdom of God. But Jesus wasn't having it. Because Jesus responded. He said, um, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. So you're trying to use scripture to cause me to go against the will of God. But it's very clear in the scripture that you shouldn't put the Lord God to the test. So if I'm the son of God, if I am equal with God, then you're putting me to the test. That's against scripture. And so what you quoted is invalid because you're taking it out of context. Satan was trying to tempt Jesus with egotism. Yeah, you the man, Jesus. You know. See, you know that, that you are so much the son of God that right now there's a detail of angels surrounding you. And, 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 and if you were to fall off of this cliff right now, they would have a duty and an obligation to, to rush from heaven in an instant and, and save you because you are the chosen one. Jesus, why don't you just flex your muscles a little bit and, 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 just, and just, you know, just throw yourself off so we can, we can see how, how, how chosen you really are. And Jesus said, it's not my time. He didn't allow the enemy to appeal to his ego. And his power to do something that God had not authorized him to do. So verse 8, the enemy is persistent. He tried again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus' final test was materialism. I'll give you all of this stuff if you just worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. What am I trying to say? The devil tried to check Jesus' identity by tempting him. And he passed the test. He was authenticated in his response to the word of God. See, the things that authenticate you aren't just the great things that are going on. It's not just the blessings that we so desperately seek after. It's the trials, the temptations that demonstrate who you really are. Don't tell me about how you can serve God when all of us are in here. It's easy in here. It's harder when nobody's looking. And it's just you and the temptation. But Jesus has provided a model for us. He's provided the Holy Spirit for us so that when we find ourselves in those moments, our true identity can be verified. Because Hebrews 4 and 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. But here we'll finish with this. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is the season where God is verifying the identity of his people. Satan tried to question the identity of Christ through temptation. But Jesus verified his identity by rejecting Satan's offers. Friends, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Because Jesus conquered sin, here are two things that are available to you now. One, you can come boldly to the throne of grace. The altar is not a place of shame. It's a place of restoration. Jesus invites us to come boldly because he purchased the right for us to come boldly. And when we come boldly before the throne of grace, there are two things that he allows us to receive. One, he gives us mercy. We obtain mercy. Mercy is leniency and compassion. Mercy is acknowledging that you did something that you're not supposed to do, but God's going to have mercy on you. We get that when we come to him. 
I'm here to tell you that if you've done some things and lived some ways that are beneath your royal identity in Christ, that we serve a merciful God who doesn't give us what we deserve. Because some of us know, myself included, if it was based on my performance, if it was based on me keeping all of God's requirements, there would be no stage because I would be smitten. But God who is merciful, lenient, compassionate. That's why we show mercy to other people because God has been so merciful to us. Because we've experienced his mercy. You know what mercy is? The money's due and you don't have it and your landlord looks at you and says, I'm going to give you some more time. That's mercy. Legally, it's due, but it is the mercy of that landlord to say, I'm going to overlook this fault because I'm committed to a relationship with you. And we serve a God who overlooks our faults. Now, doesn't mean that we abuse the grace. But the disposition of our Father in heaven is one of mercy. So as you come to the altar, mercy is what he has for you. But then also there is grace. Mercy says you're wrong, but I'm going to give you compassion. Grace says, I know you're trying, but you haven't succeeded. So I'm going to empower you to do what you can't do for yourself. Because grace is not just a merit of favor. Grace is God's divine ability to do in you, on you, and through you what you could not do for yourself. You need God's grace. God's grace is sufficient for you. So when you feel tempted, when you feel challenged, it is the grace of God that helps you escape that challenge and that temptation. It is you calling on the name of the Lord and saying, Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. And now that grace empowers you to take the next step in the right direction. So I'm here today to help us do an identity check. If you are saved and you are in Christ, then your nature has been redeemed. But sometimes we live beneath our means. Sometimes we do stuff that's beneath who we really are. And God is saying, come obtain the mercy that you need. Come obtain the grace that you need. And then there are some of us who have not given ourselves to Christ. And you're on the outside looking in. And today is the day that you need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you need to get your new account in him. That old Twitter account has to die. You know, that unverified one with that feed of the flesh? Talking in spiritual terms now. What you did, how you used to live, that dies when you are saved. You are born again. You become something totally, completely new. God gives you a fresh name, a fresh account, puts his stamp of verification on you, places the Holy Spirit inside of you, and now helps you to live up to that new name. God is saying, now I'm verifying who belongs to me.